Father, give us tender hearts for the gospel today. If there's needy souls here, those without Christ, would you please open blind eyes and soften stony hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning with me to Luke's account of the triumphal entry this Palm Sunday. It's Luke chapter 19, and it begins with verse 28. Earlier before the choir sang, I read Mark's account of it. And uh, as you turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 28, and we will... um, quickly go through it one more time. I, I want you to have a little word picture in your mind. Sometimes uh, when I'm, uh, and we live just up Daniel Road here along the woods line, sometimes late at night, um, even after we go to bed or in the wee hours of the morning, if I'm stirred awake, I can sometimes hear a, a, a thumping. Boom, 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 boom. You know what I'm talking about? And it's getting louder and louder. And some kid's coming down from Shenandoah Junction. And he's got his speakers going. And I can hear it really loud. And he's got his stereo system in his car on super loud. That's the mindset you need to have when you read Luke's gospel about this account. This is a passage that needs to be read with the volume up. You need to picture this, and not the details of the account, but at the moment when Jesus, according to Zechariah's prophecy, and according to the crowds as they are shouting out psalms of praise, and, and, and recognizing that somehow Jesus is a great prophet, it's just loud. Let's read Luke's account and let's recognize that this is now... Uh, just about one week before our Lord will go to the cross. There is, so it's going to be a very busy week. It has been loaded with ministry. He's already um, done a lot in the last few days. And this final week, as he heads to the cross, will be filled with last-minute teaching. There will be some poignant moments with his disciples. He will point to Judas at the Passover meal point out his betrayer. There will be so much that will happen. We got ahead of ourselves last Sunday focusing on when followers fall away. Peter's denial will take place. Extensive teaching. And each of the gospel accounts gives their angle and summary of this teaching. Jesus now is coming into Jerusalem. Three times he's told his disciples in just the last few days and weeks that he will go to Jerusalem, there he will suffer, there he will die, but the third day he will rise again. But they didn't understand. It's, we're told later after the resurrection and after they touched his glorified body that it was then that they began to understand what Jesus was saying to them. So as they enter Jerusalem, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's even misunderstanding by his, those disciples closest to him. And our Lord knows that he's coming to present himself as the spotless Lamb of God whose blood will flow to be the substitute, to stand in the sinner's place and go to the cross to satisfy the holiness of God so that he can pour out his mercy and his grace on needy sinners. Jesus is about the only one that gets it. Let's read. And when he had said these things, verse 28, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, 
Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And here's where the volume begins to go up. Imagine the people, the word spreading through the community. At this point, Jesus is a celebrity. He's well known and the masses have gathered. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We have, number one in our message today, our first scene, and this is the crowd at its loudest. You need to recognize, though, that at some level, this is a superficial celebration. They are limited in their understanding, and there's a variety of ways, even though Luke references the gathering as his disciples, these are those who have been tracking with Jesus, they've been spreading the word, some of them have been healed by Jesus or had had family members healed by Jesus, they've had their lives highly impacted by Jesus in a variety of ways. And this has just become quite a spectacle for Jesus to come to your town. I call this a superficial celebration, though, at certain levels, because you need to understand that it is, at some level, politically inspired. It's politically inspired, and in a way, I want to be careful with my terminology, but it's sort of the original hope and change political rally. They really have no idea what he's going to do. They just know they want him because they want what they have out. They're under Rome. Rome has fixed strong taxation upon them. Rome has abused their property rights. Rome has controlled them, though it is peaceful and they don't live so much in fear from enemies. Rome dominates and they long for Israel of old. They long for a king on a throne. They long to have their identity. They understand at some level that they are the children of Abraham and that God has made promises to them. And they know that living the way they're living under Rome is not what it's supposed to look like. And so they want political change. Not only that, you need to know that this is socially and economically driven at some level. Um, in fact, it's easy to flip there. Just flip over to John's Gospel in chapter, chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and let me show you what I mean. Just a few pages to your right in your Bible. If you have chapter headings in your Bible, in John's Gospel in chapter 6, you'll notice that it begins with a well-known story. It's the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he's taken a little boy's lunch, and he has broken it, and he has fed the masses, and there's been leftovers, and the people are ministered to, and Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing, and he's been feeding them bread and fish. Now look at, now look at uh, verse 26 particularly. 
We'll just jump right ahead. So know that this is in the context. And then people are following him around. And notice what Jesus said. Um, They found him on the other side of the sea. He's trying to get away from the crowd so he can rest a little bit. Verse 26, John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. They're not even really seeking him completely at this point because he's done miraculous signs and powerful, miraculous things and deeds. But because, look at this, because you ate your fill of the loaves. So another reason the people have gathered is that this guy is great. If we just hang out, his teaching is fascinating. His deeds are amazing. And when it gets time to eat lunch, he breaks out the lunch. This is a great deal. So not only do they want political change, but this is socially and economically driven at some level, this triumphal entry. They are not in a a deep understanding that it's prophetic, their praise, and that this this is a fulfillment to the very day prophesied by Daniel that he would come to Jerusalem, that the stones would cry out, that he's coming to present himself as the lamb to be slain. It is at some, some level celebrity-driven as well. Uh, if you're in John, flip a few more pages over to John chapter 12 and take a look at this. In John chapter 12, at the end of the triumphal entry account of Palm Sunday account in John's gospel, look at verses 17 and 18. His disciples said they did not understand. Verse 16 says they did not understand these things about him coming in on a donkey's colt and so forth. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered, this is what I referenced earlier, that when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when, they, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him up from the dead continued to bear witness. Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. I don't blame them, but reality it is re- reality is that these that Luke calls disciples who have gathered, yes, they're fulfilling prophetic scripture in their praise. Yes, they're calling him Hosanna and King of Kings and so forth, but they are looking for a literal earthly kingdom. They are looking for political overthrow of Rome, they're looking for David's throne to be restored. They're looking for social economic improvement under his leadership. They've already experienced it with the eating of bread and fish. And this guy is just fascinating to be around. In fact, he even raised Lazarus from the dead. Let's go hang around because I would love to see him raise somebody from the dead too. Because of time, we need to fast forward now to the second part. Here in the triumphal entry... The beginning of the week of passion, we have the crowd at its loudest. They might raise the decibel just a little bit when number two this morning, we see the crowd with their hearts at their hardest. Their hearts at their hardest. I want you to go to John's Gospel. I shouldn't have turned you back to Luke if I did. If you're still in John's Gospel, let's go to John's Gospel in chapter 18. Um, We were just there, weren't we? No, we were at chapter 12. Now over to chapter 18. Beginning with verses 38 and 39, keeping in mind, same place, same people, one week later, 
Many of the people, no doubt, who had waved the palm branches and littered the street with leaves and branches, calling for this new transition of a king, many of those people are now caught up in the same crowd. Crowds are fickle, you know. And we go from the crowd being loudest of praise on the triumphal entry to a point where their hearts are at their hardest one week later. Notice what John says in chapter 18, verses 38 and 39. He's before Pilate now. We're fast-forwarding through the events of the week. He's had his kangaroo court trial. It's beginning. They've taken him to Pilate. The religious leaders want to remove this guy. They're so jealous of the crowds that follow him. Verse 37 of John, 19 says, uh, John 18 says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, Well, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. Now listen to what he says. This is the local governing leadership who has the final say in what's going to happen to Jesus. He's questioned him a little bit and he goes out and he says to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So this is the Passover. Jesus has just eaten with his disciples. He's now been betrayed by Judas. He's in front of Pilate. Pilate can find no reason to do anything with this guy. He doesn't understand why these Jews are so upset with him. But he's concerned about his own political leadership and the restlessness of the crowds. And he wants the streets to remain calm. And he knows that the overwhelming opinion of the city is to get this guy and kill him. It's amazing. What did Jesus do? Nothing but good. It's a lot the same today. You start talking about Jesus and people get upset. What is it about Jesus that you can't talk about Jesus the way you can talk about any other religious leader? Jesus even prophesied about that in John chapter 15 where he said, keep in mind that if the world hates you, they hated me first. It's not going to get better, my friends. It's going to get worse. And here it is, just one week after their loudest praise, the crowd now is at a point with the hardness of heart and the hardest heart. And so Pilate thinks of something, and this is the time of the Passover feast, and so it's, it's a celebration that is overshadowed by an annual tradition. And the annual tradition is that they're allowed for the people to gather in their public street gatherings, and, the, and every year, for some reason, they will call out for some person to be released from prison. I guess it made them feel like a, um, a people that were uh, fair and a just people and a good-hearted people. Call on and we'll let somebody free. So Pilate thinks of this, and I think he knows what the crowd is going to do, but he says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they crowd out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber and a bad criminal. And then Jesus took Pilate and flogged him. 
And this is when the soldiers began to beat on him and so forth. Imagine the imagery here. This is our Lord Jesus, who has come into the city on a colt, a donkey colt. People are praising him. And one week later, now they've gathered in the streets and they're chanting, Barabbas, 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 meaning give us Barabbas and execute Jesus. Interesting. In Luke's account, it says that they were, you get the idea in Luke's account that they were screaming in like a rage calling for Barabbas. So we have their praise at its loudest. We have now their hearts at their hardest. And I want us to switch over to now thinking about what Jesus and God are thinking about. Jesus understands why he's there. But what is, what is it in the mind and the plan of God? What's going on? If you had people screaming their rage against you, what would you do to them? If people are calling for your execution, what do you do with those people? Especially if you had all power. So in the middle of this context where the crowd is crying out for Barabbas, in the middle of this context where they're screaming for the execution of Jesus, I want you to see that while the crowd, with their hearts at their hardest, I want you now to see that God is at his finest. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And I want you to just imagine that you are God. I want you to think about in his omniscience and in his oversight and in his sovereignty. This is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world that's unfolding. Galatians said this is happening at just the right time. All of these events going to the cross, being crucified for the sins of the world, being buried, rising again to authenticate and prove his deity victorious over death, hell, and the grave. All of this is coming about, and it has to come about because it has been prophesied in the Scripture, and it is God's plan. We grasp to understand the nuance. We grasp to find the answer to why did God do it this way? You have to understand that this isn't just a way. This is the way. This is the only way. That it could happen. I don't really understand how to explain that statement either. With their hearts at their hardest, God is at his finest. Here's what God is thinking about the crowd. Here's what God is thinking about lost people who scream out their rage against Jesus. Here's what God thinks about people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Here's what God thinks about people who don't care about Jesus. Romans 5 Let's begin with verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, see? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Every once in a while, you'll hear a story of somebody being hit by a train, run over by a truck, or blown up with a hand grenade as they try to rescue a little child or their buddies or a mommy pushing a stroller. Some guy is killed. On occasion, people will. But God, in contrast, verse 8, 
He doesn't do this for good people. He shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know when God is at his finest? When sinners are at their worst. It's a little bit hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? But one of the things we need to recognize that as Christ makes his way to the cross, that this is the Father's plan, John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, this is all part of the sovereign plan of God, and we love to revel in the sovereign control of God over the universe But I want to tell you that it is even more amazing to think in terms that this is driven by the love of God. God loves sinners. Sinners don't like God. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, chapter 2 particularly, we don't need to turn there right now, clearly, clearly points out the deadness of the lost. And their inability to respond to God. But God in his great love pursues sinner. You see the crowd at its worst. You see God at his finest. But I want to end our message today seeing Jesus at his greatest. Jesus at his greatest. Let's read on in Romans 5.8. But God, again Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates or displays or shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners. What did Christ do? Christ died for us. You know the stories. And you know that that's what Good Friday is about. Easter. When we want to display our love for someone, what do we do? We buy jewelry. We go out to dinner. We rent a convertible and go on a date. I just really want you to know you're special to me. When God was at his finest is when sinners are at their worst... And he demonstrates his love for us in this, that he gives Christ to die on our behalf. He doesn't give us jewelry. He doesn't take us for a ride at Hershey Park to demonstrate his love for us. He solves our greatest problem. It is very important to me as we enter Good Friday and next Sunday that you do not miss at Fellowship Bible Church the reality of what this is all about. It didn't just happen. It didn't just so happen that Pilate swapped out Jesus for Barabbas and Jesus ends up dying on a cross, but that this is God's plan, it is God's great plan, and it is God at his finest demonstrating his deepest love for those who couldn't care less about him. And Jesus is involved at his finest. Notice, let's read on. For, and he says, Christ died for us, Jesus at his greatest, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, look what it says, enemies, we were then reconciled, brought back together to God by the death of his son, much more now that, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. All right, listen quickly, the flow of my logic. When God wanted to demonstrate his love, a participant in the activity was Jesus. 
Philippians 2 clearly shows us that he was a cooperative participant in the plan of salvation. We don't have time to look there, but you need to recognize that this is couched in the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know how in the Old Testament they were always killing lambs and goats and pigeons and sprinkling blood or putting their hands on the top of a goat, the father would, and, and transfer the sins of his family, and then he would kill the goat and shed the blood. And, and that blood was a, a covering. It didn't make their sin go away, but it, it covered their sin so that they could be right with God at that point. Ultimately, Jesus, with the Old Testament saints looking forward, Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood once and for all to wipe away all the sin that was covered by the, sin, by the blood of sheep and goats. And so blood becomes a very important part of the picture. It's probably fair to say that when we say he went to the cross, he went to his death, he shed his blood, that we're essentially talking about the same thing. But it was interesting to me to think about the shed blood of Christ as a picture of the Old Testament of a lamb shedding its blood. It would be how Isaac was a type of Christ when Abraham went up to Mount Moriah. Abraham had a plan to worship. Abraham wanted to honor God, but Isaac had to be a willing participant. And more than a willing participant, he had to sacrifice his complete self. I take it that he cooperated with his father. We don't know everything that was going on in his mind. And then God stopped Abraham at the last minute with the killing knife and pointed out the ram captured in the briars by its horns to become the substitute for Isaac as a picture Isaac is a picture of Christ being willing to lay down his life. And then the, the very ram becomes a type of Christ being the substitute for Isaac. So God, in his love for sinners, is going to do something for sinners that they cannot do for themselves. He's going to take his son and yield him up to be the sacrificial lamb for our sin, to die on the cross for his blood to flow. You don't have to turn there because we're about out of time and I just want to click off the, the thoughts of the last part of my message this morning. But listen closely and you'll get the point. You're a mature audience. If you would read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, you would read there that Peter says that we are redeemed by the, and guess what he calls the blood? The precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Why is the blood of Christ precious? Why is the blood of Christ precious? And is the blood of Christ precious to you? Is the death of Christ, is the cross of Christ, is the blood that flowed in sacrifice for us precious to you? Let's just let our eyes go to Verse 9 of chapter 5 of Romans. And here's one example of why the blood of Christ must be precious to you today. Since therefore we have, verse 9, been justified by, what does it say? By His blood. You know that the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.7 that we've been redeemed by His blood. It says in Romans 3.23 that His blood is the propitiation for our sin. Right here in Romans 5, it says that we've been justified by His blood. Romans 5.10, look what it says right here in verse 10. 
that we have been reconciled to God by what? By the death of His Son, even while we were enemies. This blood, this death, needs to be precious to us because of what it makes possible in our relationship to God. Let's just focus at verse 8 and 9 one more time as we wrap up. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Christ died for us. God is at His finest because He loves us when we're at our worst, Christ is at his greatest because he gives all that he has for you to solve a problem that you cannot solve. And his blood is to be precious to us this this week and always because it is by his blood that we have been justified. And let me just wrap it up with this. Listen closely, especially if you ask yourself this question, is the blood of Christ precious to me? And you say, I don't care about the blood of Christ. You need to listen closely because it could very well be that the blood of Christ is the very thing that you need in your life today. You say, wow, is this like a vampire movie or something? Guy's talking about blood? No, the blood of Christ needs to be precious to you because it is by the blood of Christ that you are justified. Do you know what it means to be justified? It means to come to God just as you are as a screaming, raging, crowd-following lunatic who couldn't care less about Jesus, and at that very time, God loves you as much as he's ever loved you, and God gives you all that he can give you. He has no gift that is greater than he can give you than his own son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ's blood shed for your sin, and if you come to the cross and you bow down before Jesus, then you admit your sinfulness and you receive by God's grace through faith the salvation that comes through Christ You're justified by that blood that was shed on the cross. It happened over 2,000 years ago, but today if you come to Christ, you will be justified by his blood. What does justified mean? It means to be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. To be justified means to be declared righteous in the sight of of a holy God. You need to understand this. Justification is not a process. Justification is an act. You might even add the word that it is a judicial act. Here's why the blood of Jesus Christ is precious to the believer in the Lord Christ. One day, I'm wandering down the road. I'm willing to spit on Jesus. I'm living for myself. I am accumulating a debt of sin that I cannot pay on my own. I'm I'm living according to the laws of the flesh. I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. God is a holy God. He looks at me. He has no choice but to condemn me to hell. But He loves me always. And it was while I'm still a sinner that He loves me. And he gives Jesus to go to the cross to shed his blood so that if I look to God and admit my sinfulness and receive by faith the finished work of Christ, that is that Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, that I can be justified by his shed blood, like it says right here in Romans 5, 8, and 9. I can be justified. That is, I'm walking down the road, a pagan. I'm walking down the road, living for myself. I don't care about Jesus. And then one day, God stirs my heart and opens my eyes. And I recognize I'm living on thin ice. I need to do something about my sin. And then you have to recognize I can do nothing about my sin. But God loves me and pursues me. And 2,000 years ago plus, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who did the greatest thing. He went to the cross and the sins of the world were piled upon him and he paid a debt once and for all for God to before God so that my sin could be washed away by the blood. Not just covered like by the blood of goats, but washed away. 
And so I'm walking down the road and then it hits me. I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to stand in front of my creator. I'm afraid of a holy God because I'm a sinner. And because of this blood of Christ, you don't have to be afraid of a holy God. You can just come to him in faith and accept his finished work. And because the blood of Jesus Christ flowed, the moment you put your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you, God, the judge, the holy judge who has no choice but to judge sin, but who also loves the sinner and doesn't want to judge sinners, smashes down his gavel as the judge of the universe and declares you righteous. That is what justification is. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that made that possible. So that you who had a record of sinfulness is now established as a child of God with no record of sin anywhere you've been justified. It is a one-time act. It doesn't keep going. You are declared righteous. You are now a child of God. And you are in good standing with a holy God covered by the blood of Christ. So that your sin doesn't show. I really like that. Are you justified today? Has God looked at you and declared you righteous? Have you come to him and bowed your head in your heart and admitted your sinfulness and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, today would be a great day for you to just bow your head and admit that. We're going to close with a, a song today of following Jesus. And if you'd like to pray with one of our elders, we're going to have um, Bob Iwig's going to be right down here. I'm going to be over here on this side of the platform. And you guys just, if you want to come and Get justified today. Come and pray with us. You can do it right even where you are. You know you're a sinner. God at His finest loves you even in your sinfulness. And God in His greatest, Jesus at His greatest, gave His blood so that you could be justified. You could be redeemed. You could be reconciled. You could be made right with the Holy God. You could be declared righteous. Make sure you're saved today, my friend. Make sure you're saved. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank You for this... Remarkable reality that Jesus Christ was our substitute who went to the cross and that his blood justifies. That by faith we can admit our sinfulness and be declared righteous and be seated in the heavenlies once for all with a secure salvation never to be lost. Father, would you open the eyes of anyone here today who's not justified by the blood of Jesus. That they would recognize that you love them even in their sinfulness, and that you've made a plan of escape, and that it's through Golgotha and the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Make these things real to us, Lord, I pray, this Easter season. Help us to be true followers of Jesus, not just noisy crowd followers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.